Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Connection Now with your hosts, Jean Victoria Norlock and Rico Shields, bringing your inner life to your everyday life. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of Everyday Connection Now. I am, yet again, Rico Shields, and way to my north, up in the white stuff, Jean Victoria Norlock. How are you, Jean? I'm good. Good. Awesome. So, well, okay. I'm okay. It's snowing. Arr. <laughs> Arr. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm good. Well, it's raining here. It's uh, really raining here. Like... So that's why if people notice I'm in the other headset, it's because this one filters out the rain. And, man, it's getting it. So it's funny. It's, we didn't have – we had very little rain in October uh, and virtually none by comparison with what it normally does in October's around here. And so apparently uh, the rain is going to take these last 14 days or so available and, and make sure it's remembered. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mother Nature needs to feed her babies, you know? Oh, yeah. we got to have the water. It is we need that water. Oh. It is what it is. Yeah. But uh, uh, really odd for it to go in the patterns that it does. But it's always a surprise. So much fun. Yeah. Global weirding. You're never bored. Right? And... Um, Besides, it makes for nice, clean air, which I'm sure would help, you know, helps with the youthfulness. Oh, wait, we were going to talk about that, weren't we? It's yeah. This item. Because you brought up, you brought, yeah, you, you brought up a really interesting, um, interesting article this morning over coffee, and I think it's really cool, and I think people need to hear about it. Um, and as with, you know, this one's on, on the BBC's in, in, in the health um, health part of their news so that's kind of cool so that it'll get out to lots of people and I think people need to hear but it's kind of a no-brainer which is the funny thing that when when I heard the title of the article I was like well duh (laughs) that makes sense but it's something that we don't consider every day in our day-to-day life I mean there's so many people out there that are concerned with um, aging and the aging process and so, and there's, there's and a huge movement physical, towards health right now as well. Looking towards physical and, things, yeah, like diet and exercise. Always and, looking for physical things, diet, exercise, stuff like that. But the article is entitled "Depression Makes Us Biologically Older," and I think that that's absolutely brilliant because it's about time somebody came up with the emotional angle of aging. 
and the implications around your emotional well-being and its effect on your physicality. And the more we talk about it, the more people are going to tap into that idea and the more they're going to take it seriously and they're going to really look it in the mirror and going, okay, am I happy? And if I'm not happy, how is that affecting me? Right. What, what so this is a really it? exciting... Yeah, what can I do about it? This is really, really exciting. Ditch the aging creams, ladies. Stop wasting your money. Get happy. Just get happy. Abraham says it get all the time. Get happy. It, it, it really does make a difference. You're, it, it, this kind of thing is where science is beginning to discover that the emotional body, as some people have called it, but that your emotions have a direct effect on your physical apparatus as well. And um, uh, so it's always exciting for us to see when science and spirituality sort of converge. And uh, as I believe they always would if they were carried to their ends, so to speak. Not that there's an end in there, but carry them far enough, they'll converge because um, your emotional state, which depends on your spiritual state, your your emotional state affects directly. You're, you're depressed, your telomeres on your cells, which is, think of it as a tail. There's a tail, and when these cells reproduce, that tail gets shorter, and when it runs out of tail, then it quits reproducing, and that's the end of that cell. Now, I am... It won't be that way forever because there's ways to make telomeres get longer, but that's a bit maybe up the road. Um, but we do know already that making telomeres shorter means making older. And when you're depressed, it happens much faster than when you're not. And here's an interesting part that I want to bring up from the article is that there were visible differences in the measure of, a, of the cell aging in the telomere itself, in the length of the telomere. And it couldn't be explained by other factors, such as smoking or drinking. So they actually did a wide enough study that they included those, those factors like smoking, drinking, and, and other stuff. And it didn't ma- matter if the person smoked or drank as much as it mattered whether or not the person was happy or had led a happy life. And this is saying that this is not just if you're depressed on a constant basis. This is saying if you've had depression in the past, if this is something that it's, you know, that you've dealt with, that this is something that you need to look at because it it is going to affect you in the long run. It's going to affect your physical, the physical outcome. And so it's taking it's taking that age old belief that stress is a killer down to a really basic cellular level. And it's about bloody time, really, if you ask me. But that's just my opinion. Well, you know, the whole... <laughs> oh, I know. You know. I'm just a radio show host. <laughs> people with a history of, of severe depression are more likely to have heart attacks and cancers and things at a younger age. Well, yeah, it's because biologically they're older than their physical yeah. calendar age. And uh, so the attendant things come with it. Icky stuff. Heart attacks. So how cool is that? I mean, following your passion can keep you young. Who knew? Who knew? (laughs) People have been saying it forever. Down with the cream, up with the be happy. Yeah, right. We're we're looking at it on a scientific, from a scientific perspective, we're looking at it on a cellular level. It's really exciting. It's exciting breakthroughs in science that I 
I know ultimately you're going to change the way people look at these issues and address them. You say, well, you know, Richard Branson, he looks young for his age. Well, yeah, he's wealthy. He can get all those creams and treatments and things. He probably doesn't do any of that. He probably is just following his passion and happy, and he laughs a lot. I know that. I've seen him on an interview, several interviews. He certainly does. Laughing. And um, so anyway, there you go, folks. The, the the physical evidence is coming in to support what, you know, some have been talking about for a long time. And uh, I just always think it's cool when that happens. And, and of course, physical Thinking evidence. Thinking about something that, Starting People have been talking about it for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a guest tonight who might know something about that. Something about that. Um, our guest tonight is, is uh, going to be discussing, among other things, uh, parthenogenesis, which, um, well, we'll get into what that is in a minute. But it's big, big words, so that ought to be fun. I like big words. Plus some music <laughs> and some uh happiness and hilarity and, and, and whatever else we stumble upon. But we have with us uh, this evening, Den, uh, is it Poitras? Yeah, you've got it. Poitras, yeah. Poitras. Okay, good. My, my time in South Louisiana has served me well, I guess. We, we talked about how to pronounce parthenogenesis, but we never covered the name. I was like, well, oh, wait, help. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> welcome. Up in, how are you? Thank you. Very good. If we were in Canada, my name would be uh, said among the French people. They would say uh, Denis Poitras. <laughs> Poitras. Uh, down mm-hmm. here. Yeah, Poitras. Yeah. But uh, it's Poitras around here. Yeah. And uh, I'm kind of between you two. You're in Costa Rica, and Jean's up in Canada, and I'm in Massachusetts. So we, we, got, we got the bases covered, awesome. north to south. International show. I love, I love that technology lets us do this. It, it, it's just so awesome. It is. I'd love to uh, uh, dedicate uh, our prayers and feelings and hopes and dreams to the people in the Philippines who just had a taste of uh, some very negative mother energy down there and... Uh, uh, I just hope that they can be comforted and find relief and and survival real soon. <laughs> That's pretty awful. I'm I'm, but, uh, I'm I'm so glad you actually mentioned that, Den. Before I, before we get to who you are, um, and I, I would like to 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 mirror that back because yeah. I everybody everybody who knows my work knows that I have a children's home out there that I, I very much care for. We have friends and family in the Philippines. Um, I've been there three times myself. Uh, so what I'd like to say is I have a great deal of faith that as has always been in the history of the Filipino people, that their faith and their family values and their community strength will pull them through this. And um, it is an absolutely devastating thing that they are going through. But the global outpouring of support has been just absolutely mind-blowing. And I, I see a divine plan in everything. And the more that people see the strength of the faith and the family values, 
of the Filipino people, the better it's going to be for the whole world. So right. as horrific as this experience is, is being for many people, it is also offering a lot of light to the rest right. of the global community because yeah. you cannot hold a Filipino person down. It's not possible. And, um, you know, we've seen in the past where you see, see videos of them trying to, to pull things out of flooded homes and they'll be singing while they're, while they're working. Um, they don't do resentment. They don't do anger. They don't do bitterness. Um, they, they do a whole lot of love, a whole lot of laughter, a whole lot of life. So let what we're going to see, because I, I, I know, how they are. So what we're going to see over the next three weeks to year um, in watching their recovery on a global scale, let it be a lesson to all of us on how to love and support our global family because they are wonderful teachers of that. And my heart goes with them in in their, their journey right now. So I'm I'm really glad you brought it up because it's very important for people to recognize and and there there's so many ways that people can help right now you know get online look up Red Cross uh, if you happen to live in one of the big cities it is guaranteed that there is a Filipino community in their city in your city all you need to do is is walk into a Filipino bakery restaurant store and just say how can I help they will direct you to the most efficient way to help their people back home because they're very well organized so very much so and uh, we'll have a link yeah. to on uh, everyday connections page and actually i'll put it up tonight that we're recording so it will have been up for some time but uh, one of our past guests and ec family members dada uh, and i'm not going to try his last name but the um the monk our, our monk friend dada um, yes. has also has friends in the Philippines, in, including fellow monks that he's studied and worked with that are out there, were out there helping before there was a storm. Um, and and um, but one of his friends in the Philippines sent him a look. This ace, this aid agency we know is right here. I'm talking to them and they're good. So we'll post that one too. But you can you can just find a Filipino restaurant and duck your head in and go look. How can I really help? And they'll let you know. Yeah. Yeah. They're a very tight-knit community. So they they will be able to direct you in, in exactly direction the direction that you need to go to be able to assist, assist them in, in the best way for them because they know what they need. That being said, now we have a question to ask. <laughs> now that we're all serious. Very serious question. Serious question. For you. Serious questions. Very serious stuff. Who on earth are you and what do you do? <laughs> yeah. That's a, always a good question to ask anyone, isn't it? Um, is it? Maybe just getting older, uh, one gets clearer about it, you know, because you kind of get the feeling I'm on my last couple of laps around the planet, you know, around the sun. So things get simpler and clearer. And uh, I could say that 
my life has definitely been interwoven with uh, this article that I wrote several times over the last 30 years and finally released it on the internet uh, for good in June of this year. And I released an earlier version of it about four years ago and I it was pretty much it pretty much remained asleep uh, for about four years until this year and when I rewrote it and just found the right place to post it and within a week or two I had close to a thousand people read it with some amazing uh, feedback and emails and phone calls and uh, and now it's up to around 17,000 people have read it, and it keeps spreading. And so it's going viral. I guess that's the word for it. But <clears throat> uh, when I was 18 years old in 1969, I found an opportunity to live at a place called Hippocrates Health Institute in Boston, and I know a lot of people are familiar with sprouts, uh, alfalfa sprouts and mung bean sprouts, and also in health food stores, there's uh, wheatgrass, wheatgrass juice. I don't know, uh, not everyone knows about it, but the people who developed it uh, were living at Hippocrates Health Institute, the founders of it, and Uh, in the 60s and I was there in 1969 18 years old uh, still pretty much a greenhorn and uh, I literally became a greenhorn when I began to drink this juice just a few ounces in the morning to start it off with and uh, it has about 80% chlorophyll in it and under the microscope chlorophyll resembles uh, the molecule of uh, chlorophyll resembles hemoglobin or human blood and I think magnesium is the only thing that's missing in chlorophyll otherwise they would be pretty much identical so it all became pretty simple that we are highly evolved beings because we have the ability to harness the uh, energy of the sun in our bloodstream <laughs> And uh, science keeps saying that uh, we are light. Uh, Lately, about uh, two weeks ago on Facebook, I have many pages that that I'm attached to that that send me notices. And uh, it was a science report saying uh, in the world of physics that they were uh, pretty much convinced that we truly are light. We are a form of light. And uh, so, anyway, I learned, uh, I I lived there and I worked there, and I was the youngest person there, and uh, there was a lot of people uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s that were uh, recovering from uh, milder forms of cancer, or they had gotten rid of uh, most of their cancer and still had uh, symptoms of it 
and uh, it was amazing to see how quickly they were responding to a raw food diet, uh, a lot of greens and, and vegetables that were grown indoors year-round in the six-story brownstone building right near Copley Square. And I got to live there for a year to begin with, and uh, my whole body and bloodstream changed. My consciousness uh, became crystal clear. My emotions, uh, uh, it's like my, my childhood and my, my struggles as a teenager and with the educational system uh, all went away. Uh, I survived Catholic school. Uh, <laughs> and, but wow. I... What, what really yeah what really got me going was the personal libraries that the two founders had uh, books related to the secrets of regeneration uh, all kinds of on yoga uh, uh, books about uh, fasting matter of fact the day I went there they introduced me to a woman that was in her 30s. I think her name was Lisa. And they said, oh, Dennis, you've got to come and meet Lisa. She's just uh, finished a 30-day fast. And my mind went blank. I thought that people would die after maybe six or seven days without eating food. Anyway, she uh, was very radiant and uh, was full of energy and just looked wonderful sparkling and uh her diet was uh, just a few ounces of wheatgrass in the morning and the rest of the day was uh very pure water with maybe a little lemon in it and uh, no sugar and uh, she did that for 30 days so i began reading books about it and uh, how one needs to prepare for a long fast like that it's not really suggested uh, at first, uh, one has to prepare for it, like I say, through a very clean diet. So off I went into the wonderful world of uh, fruitarianism and breatharianism is, a, is when you extend the fast. And uh, there are people that go longer, much longer periods of time without solid food. I found out way back then in 1969. And uh, But also what really uh, stuck in my head was I began to read deeper into these books and I, began to, I stumbled on to a lot of biology and uh, especially women's biology, uh, the, the mysteries of menstruation and how uh, it's considered pretty much a mystery. Uh, women being... Uh, one of the only mammals that uh, bleeds once a month, and uh, usually mammals bleed once or twice a year, the spring and the fall. And uh, when mammals are taken from their natural habitat and put on a, a denatured diet or more of a dead food diet or something that tries to uh, mimic their natural diet, then these mammals, some of them, will bleed once a month. And there was a study I read. Really? Uh, yeah, it was a study I, I read that was, I think it was done in Japan in the 50s, where they studied 
anthropoid apes, which are very closely related to us, and they found exactly that, that when the anthropoid apes are living in a zoo or in captivity on, you know, away from their natural diet, that they'll bleed once a month. And upon returning to their natural habitat, they would go back into just bleeding once or twice a year. And uh, so there was, you, you wouldn't believe some of the discussions we had around our dinner table <laughs> at this place at Parkridge's. There were some well, young that's, that's women that were pretty mind blowing. Like that's that's I know, very I know. mind blowing. That alone, <laughs> it is. It's yes. there's a there's a lot of women athletes where menstruation disappears completely, and so that that's common among you know very you know like Olympian type athletes, women athletes. So some of the conversations around the dinner table were amazing. There were young women there in their 20s. I was still 18, mind you. I was still very young and innocent. And, but they would start talking about their menstruation. You know, after two or three months, uh, they worked uh, on the staff. You know, There's a lot of office work, and so they, had, they brought in young people. And so the, the, the young women in their 20s would talk about how their periods changed within a few months and how their menstrual flow got thinner and thinner and they had less cramps and, and no cramps and uh after a couple of months and uh and I read a lot about that and I read that that was one of the requirements uh one of the conditions where a woman uh can actually uh, conceive a child on her own without a man and give birth to a very gifted child, uh, male or female, female or male, I should say. The, the, usually females are born through these conceptions, uh, but it's not a rule, uh, which I found out. Um, males are born. And then I, I saw lists of famous people in these books I was reading that were born that way. And of course, being a Roman Catholic, that's all I heard about was Jesus was Ooh. born that way, but he wasn't the only one. Plato, Athena, who invented democracy, uh, many uh, type of uh, ancient, early, uh, pre-patriarchal Greece, and it was pre-patriarchal. The patriarchies developed later, and women lost their rights to vote. They lost... Uh, oh, you name what they lost in the Greek culture when it degenerated with patriarchy and, and war became, it just began to dominate, not just Greece, but it just began to dominate everything with the dawning of patriarchy. When men, when men rule the world, it, women get subjected. And, when, and not that when women run the world, because you can't say it the same way, but when matriarchy is there, men enjoy all the freedoms and participation in government and everything that women do. They, they just don't run it that way. And it has to do with overall, in general, women instinctually practice uh, unconditional love. And, you know, like your mother will love you no matter what happens or if you're a father that has unconditional love, you will love your child no matter what he or she does. If they're in jail, you visit them. You know, you don't write them off if they're gay. You don't write them off if 
their uh, anti-war, you know, like a lot of fathers did in Vietnam. So, you know, you go to Canada, you know, you're not going to be my son anymore. You know, that's conditional love. And, you know, women can have conditional love, too. You know, and they can be the real strict ones in the family. And uh, the thing is, conditional love depends on conditions, you know. Uh, and you never can really please what? a male god, you know. <laughs> so anyway, we're off the subject. You're bringing up a really interesting... So off the subject yeah. is good, though. And you're bringing up something that's really near and dear to my heart. Because when we speak in terms of conditional love, and then we speak in terms of the conditions that a mother puts towards her child, and expects those conditions to be met, or a father for right. that matter... We have to recognize I mean, that for it, the most part, those conditions are right. set because that unconditional love is there. And so that's the parent saying, I am concerned for your welfare. I'm concerned for your well-being. These are things that you need to learn. They're things that you need exactly. to understand about our world. And if you cannot toe the line, then I cannot help you. If you will not accept help, then I cannot waste my life in beating my head against a brick wall. And so... I mean, there has to be a certain level of boundary as well when it comes to parenting. Exactly, I and, know. And that has to I be know. recognized. So, it's, it's, right. but it's but a very it's, complex at, at same topic time. that you're bringing up. And it's, it is. It's, it's brilliant it is. Uh, because... They, they work hand in hand. Uh, yeah, yeah. They uh, work hand in hand. It's interesting. You know, but, yeah, they do. Because it's, it's interesting to me that even parents who who seem to have an inability to attain unconditional love i believe that that's something they've learned that's environmental a person is born with the ability to love unconditionally and then society comes along and beats that out of them yeah 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 so it's an important uh, trait that we are we need to relearn and bring to the surface you know it's like you know you know, like I teach my, I taught my daughter when she was very young, you know, it's like, if you, you know, she's three years old, and, you know, I said, if you go out in the road chasing your ball one more time, you'll have to go in your room, you know, and, uh, you know, I'll grab you right off of that road, you know, very quickly, you know, and uh, it, I might yeah. hurt your arm, but I, I love you, and uh, I love you so much, you know. But, you know, and I'll love you no matter what happens, you know, that that's the thing is uh, these are the rules. But, you know, I love you anyway. You know, uh, you know, I, I want you to finish high school now, I'm telling her. But if you decide to drop out, I will understand. I understand how hard it is because I had such a hard time with uh, school, the school system. Uh, I'm a very right brained, artistic, musical person. And our school systems are designed for the left brain, you know, just math and logic oh, yeah. and, uh, you know, that's very left brain oriented. And the left brain is the servant. The right brain, I like to think of it as the queen. You know, it, it, the whole purpose of life is, is to enjoy the right brain. <laughs> and we need rules and regulations. <laughs> it's like, you know, that, that's the left brain. You know, you have to learn how to play your instrument before you can really make music with it. And so the left brain helps you make music. But you can learn to read music and play an instrument and not have any feeling, you know, to, and you can't 
enjoy the music that you're reading off of the page, you know, unless you can dip into your right brain. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's the same thing with parenting. A- any discipline that you learn is for the purpose of going into your right brain. You know, and that's the queen, you know, that, that, that's, that's the beauty of life. And, you know, and it's like a male-female relationship, too. In a way, the male represents the left side and, and you know, traditionally. And the right brain represents the female side. And the yin and the yang, you know. And, and those two working together is, you can't have one without the other. I mean, it's not going to work, you know. And the world has pretty much Absolutely. been dominated for the last several centuries with the male point of view gone to an extreme Science and technology and math is, is like worshipped, like it's the be all and end all. And look where the world is at. You know, there's a total disregard. Uh, it seems at times that uh, the corporations and the, you know the industrial empire just ignore uh, the environment. And you know, it's like the, the attitude that it, reality is objective. It's materialistic. We can do whatever we want with the earth and its resources. We can treat uh, women, you know, as a lower species, you know, as just an object like the planet. So, I mean, it, I mean, we're going down a path here. It's like, you know, we started off talking about menstruation. <laughs> that's, that's what's amazing. What? About this well, subject, I just, I'm, you know? I'm listening to you talk about about the patriarchal society and and the way that um, the way that we've progressed into such an unbalanced state. And I'm right, thinking back powerful. to your Catholic your your Catholic upbringing and um, your your dive into pathogenesis. And something just clicked for me in a big way. And I think that maybe you can help us explore that a little bit further. But one of the things that we learn in Catholicity is that Mary, the Virgin Mother, was right. considered pure. Now, our current understanding of the word pure under a patriarchal society leads us to believe that she was um, she was well behaved, she was modest, she was you know, I mean, she was untouched basically. But if right. we take it from the angle of pathogenesis and what you're talking about, the word pure in this instance would not be talking about her her actions so much as her actual physicality. Her system right. was pure enough to enable her to have a virgin birth because her yes. system... Was, yes. So that's a really interesting kind of aha moment yeah. because that's one of the things that's always irked to me about Catholicism oh, yeah. is that oh. this yeah. whole idea of this woman who's not allowed to have emotions, she's not allowed to have feelings, she's not allowed to ever be angry, she's, you know, she's the and pure, pure and perfect being. And yes, yeah, and she's not allowed to on. have sex. Not allowed to have sex. Not allowed to have sex. See, virginity. Every animal virginity, on the planet has right? sex. I know. Virginity, <laughs> in its true sense, is a renewable activity. Uh, candidates, possible candidates for parthenogenesis, uh, I mean, this is remarkable. Uh, about a month after the release of my article, 
I got a series of emails from people talking about their mysterious conception stories, telling me about them. One such woman, I mean, I, you know, it reached a point where the emails back and forth were ridiculous. I gave her my phone number. We called each other, and we talked for about an hour. And she told me about, you know, she had been with her with her husband for a few years, and then the marriage went down the tubes, and they divorced. And she was on her own and feeling good, and she really uh, got into a, a vegetarian diet and just began studying about it, you know. And she got healthy and just felt great. And then she just knew one day that she was pregnant. And she, this went on for about a month or two, and then she had a miscarriage. And then several months later, it was the same thing. She had... Horrible... ...knew both times that somehow she had... Uh, a conception story, a conception experience. And that was the beginning of a whole series of emails and phone calls that I have been engaged in since the launching of this article. And uh, there's a very famous man who told me about his conception story that his mother told him a number of times while he was growing up. This man is an American and I can tell you his name. He's, he's okay about it. He has many patents to his name. He's an inventor. His name is Patrick Flanagan. And he, in the 1970s, he wrote a book that became an international bestseller called Pyramid Power. Anyway, he read my article and he sent me an email. And it was a very brief email. And it said, thank you, Dennis, for you know, tackling and exposing and, you know, just enlightening me and, and people about uh, this information. And he said, this requires direct communication. And then that was it. And I, and then the next day he called me. And I, oh, that's what he meant. <laughs> it was a phone call. So he called me. We talked at least for an hour. And he told me about his, his, his mother that, uh, she was having an operation, and to and her and her uh, husband or his father they had been divorced for a couple of years. Anyway, his mother uh, was getting a hysterectomy because she had cancer, and she had an out of body experience uh, because of the anesthesia. Uh, she didn't have a near-death experience, but she said she went into this light. She was enveloped by this beautiful light, and a voice told her that she had just conceived a child that was going to have many gifts for humanity. And that's what he told me. You know, she had passed away many years ago, but he told me, you know, that she told him that several times. And wouldn't you know it, this man has developed some incredible products for health, uh, sciences, PSI-sciences. You can get to his website. He sells these type of cellular type of regenerative products that, that deliver 
uh, water and oxygen right directly to your cells, almost like performing the same role that uh, chlorophyll does. And anyway, he's had a lot of. He works with biologists and chemists. He's a he's an engineer. He's a designer. He's an electrician. Uh, it, people think that he may be a reincarnation of, of Nicholas Tesla. He he's rebuilt and he made he built what's called a Tesla coil, which uh, puts out this incredible uh, uh, strong vibrations of electricity that recharge your body. I mean, this guy is amazing. He's got hundreds of patents. So who's to say that his mother, uh, I mean, but the thing is, is how did, I mean, you were talking about cells before this in depression. <clears throat> and uh, right away I thought of him and what he told me. I mean, it, if you look up parthenogenesis, if you Google it, a lot of stuff is going to come up about stem cell research where they take one of your cells, it could be from your, your ear lobe or, or your fingernail, and they inject this single cell with uh, uh, information, DNA information that can build uh, an organ that you, you know, like if your liver is going, well, they're, they're at the point where they're beginning to grow livers. Just by introducing a right. single cell with information, you go, well... Perhaps the spirit of Patrick entered one of her cells, but you go, well, how did she, how was she able to grow the baby and deliver it with all of that other stuff missing, you know? And that's a mystery to me. I don't know. There must have been enough left of her machinery <laughs> to develop the baby and deliver it because bingo i mean that's what happened and, and you know so that was those are just two of the stories there's a half a dozen more and uh so it seems like i mean parthenogenesis i, I just read about a komodo dragon they've been known to give birth parthenogenetically and uh the big thing in, in the science world until lately the last year or so is that the law of parthenogenesis is that whatever uh, species that parthenogenesis is occurring, like in sharks, uh, that it will only give birth to a female. And overall, that's the truth. But th last year, there was a snake that produced the male, and which I was happy to see. And, and then uh, there was an, a Komodo dragon that gave birth to a male. And I thought, this is great. So it's like science tends to get very arrogant and very stuck with their findings. But, you know, well, it, the recorded births in history are all males. Well, I mean, it's been a male-controlled world. So, I mean, there's probably thousands and thousands of women and men born this way, and, and it's all been hush-hush, and nobody says much about it. But the Greek well, priestesses... Take to it. me, yeah. though, it's almost a very it's it's almost a very logical pro progression um, that we would come on to this at this particular point in our evolution. <laughs> Saying that is because when we look at the cellular structure of the body and we recognize now that we're able to start 
actually understanding the DNA and the coding of DNA and how each strand of DNA has in it all the entirety of the information that it would need to, to reproduce. Um, and, and so if each cell has in it within the, enough DNA codes to be able to produce a full-bodied individual, then it stands to reason that one cell alone could create a human being. So this idea of needing to have an egg and a sperm in order to procreate is is kind of (laughs) barbaric. If if we're looking at at, a cellular level. (laughs) I'm not arguing that at all. (laughs) I know. Um, know. Absolutely. I'm I'm a huge, huge fan of sex. Um, But if if, (laughs) if we're looking looking at, at... our basic cellular structure now with an intimacy that we are looking at it with regards to the DNA and how it all works and the coding and and all the information that's in there, it just makes sense that all it would take would be one cell. I wanted to go back a little to, we started off talking about virginity and virgins, and uh, it is a renewable uh, activity so that a woman could... uh, and I believe historically, and I believe that it has happened more than once, that a woman, a young woman has sex, maybe even have a child. And then the relationship goes bad, and uh, she's single again, and she's raising her child and whatever, and then the community is helping her. You know, it takes a village in the old days, and have aunties and grandmas and uncles and grandpas. You know, anyway, she's not a single lady stuck in an apartment, you know, bringing our kid to daycare in the old days, you know, matriarchal communal village life, you know, indigenous life. Beautiful. Anyway, after a couple of years, uh, she could, you know, perhaps they practice vegetarianism and fruitarianism in her community. And then uh, her her periods get less and less. And and who knows? And, you know, the the knowledge that the wise women used to possess, uh, is available to her. She already knows about, like most indigenous people know about two forms of reproduction. And that's one thing that has been uh, discovered over a hundred years ago uh, that indigenous people know about that. And I just spoke, well, anyway, we're going to get a little down that line right now, but uh, it's very possible you know, basically, her virginity is being renewed. You know, she's not going to grow her hymen back necessarily, which is a whole nother medical mystery, along with menstruation. There are no; these remain medical mysteries. You know, there is no really known reason you can talk about why and how. Uh, but honestly, not why. Why is not totally solved as far as menstruation. You know, uh, it it re- still remains perplexing. You know, if you really study it. And then when you talk about the hymen, you go, "There's only one other species of mammal on this planet, and I think it's uh, one of the whales, the blue whale. I'm not sure that has a hymen." And you go, "Well, the purpose for for the hymen on the whale is to protect." her innards from seawater. But it's like, why does it exist among 
females, you know, human females. And it's a joke. Nobody knows. It's, you know, it's a joke for comedians, you know. And is this nature saying that she prefers a different form of conception? And, uh, you know, the Greek priestesses, uh, this one of the blessings I received from the first version of this article was to connect with a woman who had just finished publishing a book called the cult of divine birth in ancient Greece. She spent, oh, by now, 12 years studying uh, as a scholar the priestesses, pre-patriarchal ancient Greece culture. And the priestesses practice this art science. And she received the International New Scholarship Award for her book. And she spoke at Harvard University in Boston uh, as part of her first tour after her the launching of her book, and is profound, meticulous work that she's done in this field. And I stumbled on uh, a radio interview that she did when I was completing the first version of this article four years ago. And she contacted me right away after I sent the email, and I was crying on the phone because I've been studying this stuff for 40 years and I you know it was validation it was uh, uh, it was such, such a cathartic experience for me to be able to share with her the knowledge that I have gleamed on this incredible subject I mean after I left Hippocrates about two or three years later I met a woman by chance who had been fasting for a whole year and uh, that's what nailed it for me and she of course she had no menstruation and she, she had uh, she was not anorexic she was full of energy full of joy she didn't have a superior attitude or anything she was wonderful and uh, she was like my sister and I was at the time I had gone I had strayed from my diet that I learned at Hippocrates but I had been back onto it for about a year, and then I connected with her through a friend of a friend, and uh, we just became like sister and brother. We're both celibate, and uh, we had great conversations. We talked about parthenogenesis, the ancient long-lost ability of women to self-conceive, and she said, do you think that's possible? And I said, you know, we both read the same books by chance, and she had also spent time at Hippocrates Health Institute, so we spoke the same language, but that was the only time that we ever talked about it. She continued her fast. She wanted to know everything I knew about breatharianism, you know, the ability to go that long without solid food, and I gave her all the information that I had, which wasn't much, and I didn't advise her one way or the other. That was her choice. She continued her fast. And she continued, uh, we continued our friendship over the phone and through letters because we ended up living in different places after a while. That's a long story. But she, uh, she did have an experience uh, in, a, in a very deep meditation with a very powerful light, just like Patrick Flanagan's mother described. And a voice told her that she had conceived a child. And... Uh, 
that was in 1976. So I've been stuck in a way, you know, I opened the door, I opened Pandora's box on this ancient information and bingo, uh, you know, I meet this woman who has been fasting for a year and then goes even longer and then has conceives and gives birth to to a girl. And the girl, very sadly, didn't live very long, only lived about four months. It just died mysteriously. You know, what they call a crib death. There was no known reason, but she felt on the spiritual level that the earth at that time in 76 had very coarse, gross uh, vibrations that uh, couldn't sustain uh, or match the energy of her child, so the child went back to the light. And that was in 1976. And I'm still in touch with this woman, and she's a wonderful lady. And since then, she's, you know, had a a couple of husbands in the last 30 years, and she's uh, given birth to three boys through the normal method. (laughs) And but. She had her last divorce about four years ago. She says, Dennis, I just can't live with a man. And I understand uh, where she's coming from with that. Because <laughs> I would have a hard time living with a man. <laughs> but I'm just kidding. I love men. And, you know, I, I, I love masculine energy. Just like, you know, I I had a great father. I got a great brother. I got lots of wonderful male friends. And, and so, uh, anyway, I, it's just so much... Uh, I've been getting such validation in, in my, uh, I feel like I've been in a hermit, a hermit in a cave with this little light and for 40 years and now I'm, I'm crawling out from under my rock and I, I, I'm out of my cave and, and it's okay. Nobody's calling me up. Nobody's sending me nasty ne- emails. Nobody's saying that I'm the antichrist or, you know, you know, because, <laughs> you know, I love, I, lo- I love Jesus, you know, but the thing about, the right-wing Christians is that they think Jesus is the only one ever that's ever going to be born that way, and it's I know, it's not that's true. Really insane, you know. So insane. He's going to come back, um, and, and and his sister's going to come back, and you know, it, I don't know. The I thing is, like, did you just all, all, all children? Oh. You know, all children are saved. You know, all children have gifts. All of us are wonderful. It's just very, very fascinating that the ancient people believed that children born this way have a lot of extra gifts to give us. So they keep their ceremonies, uh, the knowledge of their ceremonies, they keep that, uh, they used to, they they would pass down from mother to daughter, grandmother to mother, you know, it just generation to generation, they would keep the knowledge of parthenogenesis, of virgin birth. Uh, alive and well from one generation to the other because uh, it could happen. You know, it could happen. And it, it, the thing is, it is happening. You know, it's happening. Lesbian women have been uh, reported reporting uh, mysterious conceptions, you know, just from their, their you know, sexual uh, ecstatic activity, you know. It, you know, it doesn't take much for an egg to be fertilized, you know, the, the sperm carries, it's very tiny, you know, it's a very tiny little thing that approaches the unfertilized egg, you know, it's a, when you look at them under the microscope, you know, you go, what, that's the, uh, that's the contribution from the male, and it's wonderful, but 
you know, I call him Sparky. It's only one one of those little Sparky guys that goes up there and and uh, and it gets to the to the egg and breaks through the uh, the surface, and then he dissolves instantly. And with infrared photography under the microscope, they've captured this glow that just suddenly comes into the center of the egg when the when the sperm dissolves, and you go whoa! And I think that's when uh, spirit enters matter. When energy enters the third dimension, you can see it. That's it. That's that's birth. You know, that's the first. Uh, that's the entry. <laughs> and that that's epigenesis. You know, when the sperm meets the egg. And uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful. Uh, but for some reason, and uh, let, let me read you something real quick. And uh, I'll take a breather. But uh, well, and we're getting close I to break time. I I. I couldn't help but think, though, when you talked about, you know, I love Jesus, that little old lady on Ellen's show. Well, I love Jesus, but I drink a little. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll leave you with one thought. This is a, a quote from this wonderful, profound, uh, mystic philosopher named uh, an amazing astrologer. You know, he died, I don't know, 20 years ago, but his name is Dane Rudyard. And this is um, his interpretation of an image that was channeled by this very gifted psychic woman around 1915, I think if I have my facts right. But it was about 100 years ago. This woman channeled uh, this image, and here it is. Uh, It's uh, the life force itself acts as a fecundating power. This leads the way to a creative mutation, a new product of evolution, a new type of human being who is not born from ancestors and is consequently free from the inertia and karma of mankind's past. That would be that spark there. That, that would be a parthenogenesis in a nutshell. Ha, pun intended. <laughs> but uh, I just think that it's such a beautiful thing. Uh, strange, but beautiful. <laughs> it's, anyway, it's, uh, no, it's it's such a it's yeah. it's such a cool topic, and um, we we do need to take a break definitely because we're at break time. But this is an absolutely fascinating topic. I I think that when when we look back on it four years ago, it just wasn't the right time. So I get that, you know, everything in its time. It's all it's all about timing, baby. Um, so um, I'm just grateful that you stuck it out and that you, you redid it because this is really fascinating stuff. And I, I think that it's going to really redefine the way we look at at some of our historical beliefs. And that would be a big help in rebalancing our society and not maybe making it a matriarchal society as much as making it a balanced society right. where there's you, understanding right. you know what, um, which you know right. things like things like the story of the virgin mary do not help us with that <laughs> process so yeah. um this this could <laughs> totally re redefine the way people look at this so i'm fascinated with that but before we um, before we get into it again, because we could do this all night, um, oh. we do need to take a break. And I know Rick has some of your music because you're more than just 
this incredible being who's done research for 40 years into some stuff that I don't think people have, have had the courage to look into. <laughs> um, and so that's really cool. But you're also a musician and apparently a really good one, according to my partner here, who, who said that your music was uh, quite pleasing to the ear. So I believe he has a song sitting in queue. I do. I have several here, but I thought in honor of the fact that it's uh, it's just been continuing to rain harder and harder uh, during this interview. I'm not staying away on purpose. I'm just trying to keep the rain away from the sound. Uh, but you have one entitled April's Rain. I thought that might be fitting. Yes, yes. You want to yeah, tell us it, uh, about it or shall I just pull it on them? Well, uh, just briefly, it's uh, I called it April's Rain because uh, April, and well, definitely in New England, will play tricks on you. Uh, the mood will shift uh, in nature. You know, you see the crocuses come up on a sunny day and they push themselves up through the snow. And you go, oh, I'm so glad, you know, it's getting warm out. And then the snow goes away in about three, four, five days. And then... And then it gets cloudy, and then the wind comes, and we get a mini blizzard, you know. And it's so they say April is the cruelest month. So it goes. This piece goes between uh, melancholy and joy. <laughs> so joy and sorrow, and it fluctuates between those two. But I think it ends in joy. So and it's instrumental. So play away. Awesome. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. So. <laughs> a little April, April's rain, and uh, we'll be right back, folks. Stay with us.
Welcome back, everybody. That was this evening's guest, Dennis Poitras, Dan Poitras, uh, with his April's Rain and uh, beautiful piece. I'll, I'll send it to you, Jane, so that you will have heard it by the time this gets posted. Awesome. And uh, because you do some, and, and you play some amazing, before we jump back into this conversation, I just want to, you play some amazing and unusual instruments, like a 20-string electric dulcimer with a bow and a... Right, that I... Yeah, you know, with by overdubbing, I mean, I can... I created, like, my own little uh, string section, you know, just by one track uh, piled on top of another, by bowing it, because, you know, I love... I wanted to get that authentic violin and cello thing. You know, I would change strings, you know, between tracks to get a cello sound. And... Uh, and then, of course, uh, it's all plucked and corded like a guitar. But I play it on my lap with the strings facing upward, you know, with the body of the instrument facing upward. Like a, it's a lap dulcimer. They're traditionally, I started off with a four-string one, and uh, I just got burned, uh, bored with it and uh, or frustrated because it, it I just couldn't get enough sound, so I just began to add strings <laughs> and electronics to it until it turned into this monstrosity. Uh, but I, I developed uh, like a carpal tunnel problem about uh, six years ago, and I, I just stopped playing it completely because it was just very painful for me to do it. And I took cortisone shots, and it's just that my arm was disfigured in an accident that I had about 10 years before that. And... Uh, I just couldn't continue with it, but that's okay. I, I developed other instruments, and I'm playing them, and uh, I developed a one-string bass that really uh, you wouldn't be able to tell if if you were blind and you heard some of the recordings with my bass on it. Actually, it, it is in that piece. Uh, it's in all my pieces, you know, but uh, it takes a long time to learn how to play a one-string bass the, the, the way I play it. It's uh, it derives from the, the uh, traditional washtub bass uh, that uh, the black folks invented uh, on a shoestring budget uh, down in, in the delta. Right. They think nobody knows they can't pin it down, but you know they use an old washtub and, and a broomstick and a clothesline, and I don't know where they got the idea, but it's like African instruments sometimes. If you search them, you can see uh, ideas that are similar to the washtub bass, a gourd with uh, uh, a skin stretched over it and a string, uh, just one string that comes out of the gourd, out of the string, out of the skin, and is attached to a neck, and they bow it, and they pluck it. and So there's primitive instruments that perhaps was in their memory when they built these original washtubs. And, you know, you see them in uh, jug bands, you know, recordings from the 1920s and 30s. And uh, there was a guy that played one in my neighborhood when I was 16. I, I built my own and I began making uh, improvements on it over the years. And now it's at a level that really it sounds like a stand-up bass, you know, from the 40s, you know, recordings of these old uh, jazz and blues recordings. It, it fits in great with bluegrass, too. But uh, so that that's that. And then I, I play all kinds of flutes and 
and percussion instruments and uh and so you know every once in a while i I put together a composition and practice the heck out of it <laughs> until i until I feel like I can record it <laughs> multi multi-dimensional individual yeah you know creative energy you know and and I have a lot of visual art i've I've essentially have been a visual artist since I was five years old. And, you know, nobody knew what to do with me, you know. Uh, you know, it's, again, I, I, I see it as patriarchy. Uh, you know, uh, sure, they encourage creativity, but, you know, if you're going to be an artist, you know, you, you know, your parents just go, oh, my God, what are you going to do? You know, what are you really going to do? <laughs> How can you earn a living? Only a very few fortunate souls are able to earn a living in art. But if we were in one of the old cultures... See, the thing about matriarchy is that it produces egalitarianism. It produces balance. And it's, it, uh, it actually reflects a theory that I found in, in, in diet. When you eat food that's living, you become alkaline. And you, you become about uh, 80% alkaline if you really do the diet properly. And you become basically an alkaline battery. Now, the old days, Grandpa and his Model T Ford, he had an acid battery. And I remember my dad in the 50s with acid batteries. And in the 60s, and you know, they were not very dependable. Sometimes they would blow up or, or ooze, you know, poisonous chemicals, and you know, had to replace them. They would, you know, get very hot and uh, burn out. But they developed uh, alkaline batteries, which is 80% alkaline, 20% acid. So it's able to hold the charge of electricity for a lot longer. And it's the same thing with the human body. If you think of the soul as an electrical field, when we get our bloodstream uh, 80% alkaline and 20% acid, then our body is able to hold the full uh, bounty of our electrical field it, or the chi energy and when you when it becomes acid uh, when it becomes dominated by acid then we start developing a lot of uh, problems you know health problems so uh, you even can extend that formula to the political arena if women uh, com- comprised 80% of the political body and 20% men, I think that same balance would be restored between yin and yang. It's strange, but I find that to be true. Uh, uh, matriarchy produces balance, and it produces uh, 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 an egalitarianism. Everyone has equal rights, but patriarchy, is that's what produces imbalance and, uh, and war and violence and, and, uh, and the destruction of the environment and our bodies, and ill health. And plus, uh, there's so much uh, sex in the world, <laughs> and I'm afraid we've been very successful in reproducing ourselves uh, in the normal way. You know, we, we would do uh, ourselves a big favor uh, by kind of sublimating uh, our sexual impulses. And that is... A whole nother subject called celibacy. Celibacy is the is a gift that you receive when you live 
very close to nature when you eat properly. Small amounts of food that's alive and fresh and organic and easy to digest and full of all the nutrients nutrients and large uh, content of chlorophyll. And we get our our bloodstream in top shape. and, uh, And our sexual impulses become sublimated. They don't become repressed. You're not going to go without sex because of moral reasons. There's nothing morally wrong with with sex. It's not a dirty thing. But it becomes sublimated. And uh, so our sex urges just, both men and women are more relaxed. If you live among vegetarians and yogis, people that practice yoga and vegetarianism all the time, there's much less emphasis you know, like the male-female game, the sexual innuendos, you know, that stuff goes into the background. It doesn't mean it stops, it doesn't exist, but it just retreats. And you really see someone as your sister. You know, there were a lot of young women that came to Hippocrates Health Institute, and I really felt that way. I felt like, this is like another sister. I, I grew up with two sisters who I'm still close to, you know, Thank God for my sisters because uh, through uh, all learning this incredible knowledge, I I was able to tell them about it. I couldn't really tell my brother about it. I couldn't really tell my parents about it or my my friends, a few friends, but my sisters were able to go to listen to what I was learning and they totally acknowledged it as being real. So they helped me uh, through a difficult period of my life because uh, I, I did lose a son right around the time that my friend uh, Lori, who was the breatharian uh, that fasted for over a year and had a baby, uh, about uh, three or four months before she conceived uh, her child, uh, I lost mine. I had a four and a half year old boy and he drowned in a river in California. It was just a beautiful, clear day. And it was just a stupid accident. He just came, he, he was out of my sight for like 10 minutes too long. And uh, that's all it took. And it, he drowned in a very small amount of water and, you know, didn't find his body until the next day. It was uh, one of the most torturous 24-hour periods I've I ever uh, experienced in my life. And it, it devastated me. And... Uh, uh, my, just staying in touch with my friend Lori through her two-and-a-half-year fast and her pregnancy uh, and her experiences that she would have with voices, you know, in her meditations, uh, that kept me uplifted uh, through that very, very dark, difficult period uh, of losing my child. And uh, I ended up feeling like the Catholic God, you know, who 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 uh, gave up he he surrendered he uh he, he suffered the loss of his only begotten son you know that's what i was raised with and, and you know because god uh gave jesus to the planet and that was his only begotten son and he sacrificed him and you know i don't i don't quite know what that means god i mean if you're god why would you do that so i mean but anyway i ended up feeling feeling like my catholic god you know I, that I had lost my only begotten son. I I have, I you know I remarried many years later, and uh, I have a wonderful 
17-year-old daughter who is just sparkly and uh, uh, just wonderful. And, and I also, through my, uh, my, my marriage uh, over a dozen years ago, uh, I have inherited a wonderful stepson who, who lost his father when he was only a year old. And uh, he never got to meet his father. So uh, basically, I, I, I found a boy that was searching for his father, and I was a father searching for my son. So uh, we're really close. We became really good friends over the last 15 years or so. And uh, so I've been blessed, basically, with a son again. And But this time around, uh, I was a much more capable parent. <laughs> uh, although it truly was a pure... Uh, accident uh, that I lost my son. It wasn't because I was, you know, drinking or being negligent. He just, it was just one of those freaky accidents. And the drowning of, of, of a child is very common, happens to a lot of people. It's one of the most common ways that children, uh, when they're that young, die. So, I mean, I found a little bit of comfort in that fact. You know, I'd start to stop blaming myself. But uh, Yeah, my father lost uh, a yeah. younger brother. To the water. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know. So anyway. I, I was going to say, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm listening to you talk, and I hope that I, I can't even fathom. Um, I mean, that's that. I, I don't know. That might be the one thing in life that would come near to breaking me. I think, but I, I would hope that you've come to a point, um, in your knowing of you that that you don't place blame on yourself because. It, yeah, just, yeah you, you, you know what, what you said about okay. the, Philip, the Philippine people, what you said uh, reminded me of that, that basically when a door opens, another one, um, when a door closes, another one opens at the same moment. And uh, like you Absolutely. said, it's a, grues- a, it's a gruesome opportunity for them, but it is an opportunity for them to really... Uh, it, to, to get closely knit as a community to show their their bright side, you know, to get that stiff upper lip going like the English when they were being bombed in World War II. You know, they would... Well, what's I, interesting, love, I love the English for that. <laughs> what's interesting about the Filipino people is that their, their, their way of life is so understated on a global scale. Um, there's really right. so little... Appreciation for this inner knowing that they just seem to have innately that um, all is well, regardless of what's going on. And to be exposed to them in an intimate way for any length of time can be literally quite life-changing for individuals who've grown up in, in Western society. And so when I came back from my journey there, my life-changing journey in the Philippines, uh, you know, I wanted to tell everybody that this was a way of life that could could literally save us, like on a global scale. If we could all look at, at the world the way these people can look at the world, then the, there would be no more problems. Um, and it was wow. really hard to get that across. But I think it's really important that these smaller countries who have this innate inner strength and this innate ability to to pull faith out of nothing. Like I mean, they're they're and 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 faith 
for for what I've witnessed from the way that they live, faith is such a a, a light word. It's not a strong enough word. It doesn't right. get across clearly the way that they live their lives. And so for me, um, and I think that any any good that can come of this that might touch people's hearts and souls, I really believe that the Filipino people would find comfort in that, comfort in knowing that their loss, their sorrow, their ability to overcome and rise above had touched and inspired the lives of others because that is the core of who they are. They don't want to love. They don't need to love. They just are love. They are joy. It's innate in them. And um, for the world to be exposed to that now is, 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 it's, it's important. Well, we're at the yeah. cusp of our growth, you know. I mean, we're really, we're really, yeah, we've done it. We're we're on our way. We've the evolutionary scales, but we we still have a lot to learn from each other. And yeah, one of the greatest famous, teachers yeah. on our planet, I believe, are the Filipino people. And so, I want the world to see them. I would like to see them in a more positive way. Um, we don't really need, I don't think, these natural disasters anymore to to remind us how important compassion is and and global brotherly and sisterly love is. Uh, and I see the day soon coming when natural disasters are just simply not going to be needed by us in our reality because we'll have surpassed that. But if it has to happen, then... I know that good will come of it because it always does. Yeah. And um, oh yeah, oh, yeah. It, it, natural disasters it, do tend to bring out the best uh, and worst, perhaps, but also the best in people. I mean, you look at the the storms on the east coast and uh, of the U.S. and uh, earthquakes in other places, and and uh, uh, the way that people just pull together and. Uh, uh, and the and and the way that almost instantaneously any sort of you know that one is from that class and this one's from that level and this one's from over there just disappears and all of a sudden you're all just people trying to get through this and um you know a real great equalizer in that uh disaster circumstance and uh, uh but but it is. I mean, I see it in the people down here. They don't. You're not ever going to hear probably big, huge. You know, Costa Rica's the next economic giant because they don't care. They don't want to. They have what they want. And yeah. and and if they get some more things, that's that's okay too. But um, you know, they feel like they have what they want. So what? What do I want? Don't want nothing. I'm, that's, I'm good. That's great. That's great. You guys hearing that from both of you. You know, I, I know so little about uh, the Filipino people and the people in Costa Rica, and it's just great. It's just something now I want to look at, and you know, I want to be able to learn about. It's beautiful. I mean, I always end up finding the same thing when I uh, really get into people, uh, that people are so wonderful, really. Uh, they're all the same everywhere. You know, there's always a handful of 
bad apples, but for the most part, everyone is just incredible, and you can see that come out in disasters. And I, you know, I, I see no need for disasters. Honestly, we have them, and it does bring out a tremendous spirit that just really uh, is such a great example for us to try to duplicate in our own life without disasters, you know, to, to act like... Right. Every day is is a miracle, and every moment, and you know, I really appreciate friends and family and opportunities that come your way. You know, kind of really raises your appreciation the more you find out about things like that. So, I I want I yeah, can't wait to uh, find out more. You know, that's that's really what what um, what I learned, what I saw when I went there is that they live in a state of gratitude. And, um, yeah. I mean, this is a people who, who many of them have so little, if you compare it to, to Western civilization, Western living. However, they are just simply filled with joy. And I, I, it's, it's so hard to describe it. All I can I say know. is that, you know, I mean, if you if you get the chance then I'd highly recommend going. And I don't mean going as a tourist who, who's going to go see all the beaches. I've still never been to a beach in the Philippines. Um, <laughs> but going in the capacity that, that I went, and my, my curiosity was for the people. I knew I had to be there. I knew there was something about their culture that I had to learn. I ended up writing a book about it. Um, it ended up changing wow. my life completely. And, but I went as a student, and I went to them with questions. And once they understood that I was not there to tell them that our Western way of life was better, but that I was really interested in, in how they viewed the world and how they saw social issues, political issues, how they viewed spirituality, religion. Once I started asking those questions, they really began to open up. And I saw a whole different world that I could bring back to me when I came back to Canada and, and this new knowledge that I had that I could share with people through my work, through my writing, through the radio show. Um, so, and that's, that's the gift that they offer to people. If you can go in, like Rick often says, sometimes people go to Costa Rica and they don't really want to get to know the people. And, but I really believe that if you're going to travel, you need to do it on, on a really human level. It's not oh, about yeah. going and seeing the sights and going and seeing the, you know, I mean, the Eiffel Tower, whatever, whatever country you're in, you need to see the people, get talking to the people. And and one of the best ways to do that is, is talk to the normal, everyday, ordinary people, talk to your concierge, talk to your waiter, build a relationship with a waiter who serves you on a regular basis while you're there. Um, I actually had a hostess from the hotel take me to a Christian Bible study to show me, you know, and then the, the, the restaurant manager ended up taking me to his family's home out in the provinces, and I stayed there for three days with them. Um, you know, that was seeing the world in a way that I would have never seen it. The children's home took me to their, their different location. It was like, I don't know, five-hour drive in a van up a mountain um, during a major flower festival, but they took me with them. And, and showed me what life was like in this children's home. 
Come live with us for a few days and you'll understand, you'll see. Uh, and, and that's what I'm talking about when I talk about people traveling and getting to know the people. I mean, you have to get in there. You can't sit in a hotel room and take your cab all over. Make friends with the locals and, and they will take you by the hand. And if you're genuinely interested and if you're really, really intrigued by their way of life and you, you know that there's something that they can teach you because there's something that everybody can teach everybody. So if you go with that open heart, that open mind that there's oh, something yeah. here that I need to see that I need to learn, then you can have a life altering experience simply by having a conversation with a cab driver. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, it, it sounds a lot like, uh, uh, I went by myself to Mexico. Uh, the, I met these couple of Mexican guys and, uh, they liked my art and music and they said, Oh, they, Jenny, you got to come to Mexico. The people will love you there. And I went with them. You know, we barely had any money. We made it. Uh, we went 1,500 miles south of the border uh, to this little town called Tapalpa, way up in the mountains. And they left me there with some friends, uh, this family that rented out these one-room apartments. And it was beautiful there. And uh, I couldn't speak any Spanish. I didn't have a car. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any job. <laughs> And they left. They went to Guadalajara, about 80 miles away, looking for a place that we could all stay in, you know. They had a bunch of friends there. And about once a week, they would come back and, and pay the people. They didn't charge much. But the people there, I mean, they knocked on my door. They fed me. They, I, I found a, an English, I found a Spanish teacher that wanted me to, to uh, help her with English. And she taught me the basics of Spanish. I, I experienced such hospitality and such an appreciation for my art and music. I felt like a rock star. I felt like I was yeah. uh, Salvador Dali. You know, I felt like this famous person. Yeah. I was only 25. And, they, you know, I hadn't really developed my art to the extent that I have now or my music. But they just, they just drank up every ounce of uh, creativity that I had. And they supported me for four months. We did go to Guadalajara for like the last two months of my stay there, and things got worse for me. I lost all my papers. I lost my my driver's license and and my visa, and uh, you know, and I was kind of in a bind, you know. But they kept feeding me, and they would uh, they brought me uh, electrical equipment that I could play my instrument through, and they just wanted me to to, and they bring uh, paint me to, and canvases and I, I just couldn't believe how I was treated and I gave away all my paintings before I left and and uh, and, and these guys uh, were, were around my age around their 20s and they cried when I gave them these paintings you know before I left and uh, I I'll, I'll never forget it how I was treated and it was so I don't know it was wonderful it's like you said you know I really got into the locals and uh, I know I would find that same hospitality anywhere I went, as long as it wasn't in a major city. <laughs> I suppose in a major city on the outskirts, I could make connections. But well, it was this I small know town. because I was, yeah. Yeah. I was in, I was in Manila. I was yeah. in downtown Manila, oh, and I great. still found it. So I believe it can be yeah. found. Um, Me too. Anywhere. Yeah. I did and, find it. I think you just have 
to you just have to have the open heart and the open mind and and the appreciation for for their generosity and, the, and their willingness to share. Yeah. I mean, and your own willingness to to yeah. to respect them as human beings. Just treat them as other human beings. Oh, yeah. You don't have to treat them special, but don't look down on them. Um, Right. And uh, and then the willingness to get out of the tour bus, because, I mean, let's face it, folks, if you ride around in a tour bus looking out that glass window, you might as well be home watching TV. You don't even know what it smells like. Absolutely. You don't know what it feels like. You don't. It's, that's yeah. television, you know, but uh, but I digress. I I see it. I, I've gotten over being angry at it now. Just now I just think it's funny and odd when I see the gringos down here doing that. Because that's always the talk around here. Is, is it, are they a gringo or a Tico? And the Ticos are the Costa Ricans, and the gringos are pretty much everybody else, but particularly North <laughs> Americans. <clears throat> and because there are a lot of Canadians and and Americans down here, and there's a whole crew of them in this town in Uvita that some of them been here five years, and they they still don't know any local people. They they oh, stay they terrible. keep to themselves, and they. That's uh, you know, there's the gringo restaurants yeah, to go to and the gringo this to ridiculous. go to. And, yeah. and, and, and it is just so, I find it so um, insane because of how the people here are. I mean, I, I, uh, I picked up this one fellow. He was on the side of the road. <clears throat> He's an older gentleman. Uh, I pick up younger folks too. I don't age discriminate when I pick folks up, but I see people on the side of the road. I pick them up. I got a big car and a big truck. And um, so I picked this fellow up and we had about a 10 minute ride to the center of town, which is where he wanted to go. And uh, which that's, that's a nine minute ride to the edge of town and then one minute to get to the center. Um, But after five minutes of conversing, part of which was occupied with, you know, blatant compliments to my Spanish, which is uncalled for because it's not very good. Uh, he invited me. He said that he had uh, the keys to this uh, gate that's an entrance to the, to the beach. And, and, and Costa Rica, no, there's no such thing as a private beach. You can float up in a boat and get on any, any beach you wish. But getting to it from the land may be hard, you know. And... Uh, and he invited me to, to call him. He gave me his phone number and, and invited me to call him. And, and he'd, he'd get the family together, and we'd all go down, and we'd spend the afternoon on the beach down there um, away from the folks and have some food and tell stories and laugh. And, and, uh, um, and you just it, – it's those sorts of things that these people are missing out on. You know, not that they're all going to get invited to uh, – a semi-private beach somewhere, but that kind of open-hearted generosity and acceptance, I have found, I, I've not found anybody yet. I, maybe there are some, I, surely there are some somewhere. There's been some robberies around here, so I guess there are some bad apples, but I've not run into a single one. And, uh, and and uh, so it does. It soapboxes. I get up on my soapbox a little when people start, you know, because people down here want to talk about the nasty Costa Ricans, and I just want to beat them up. I do. Not beat them up. Slap them around a little bit. Just just wake them yeah, up. Yeah, I know. You know. Yeah. I know. That same thing goes on. Yeah. You know, but, uh, people, you know. 
Yeah, yeah, we're just people. I think it's just, you know, I mean, we get, we get so, we get so, and this kind of, we can roll it back into wrapping up this topic tonight, but we get so ingrained in our beliefs and so oh, convinced yeah. that our way of doing it is the best way. And so anything new can't possibly be a better way because we've always done it this way. And, you know, um, it's just, it's, it's one of those things that it's, it's part of our societal structure in the moment. And I believe that we're getting past it, but it has been our habit to hold on to our habits as long as humanly possible. And so when things like pathogenesis, wow, I stumbled over it. How, how that? When things like pathogenesis comes to light or is the light is shed back on it, it's, it's re-presented to the people. They, at first, are going to balk because... They have this idea in their head that this is the way it's always been. And your, I, your, your new idea might very well challenge the core fabric of some of their belief structures, like oh, yeah. divine right. intervention yeah, one thing I, in I, the I, whole Jesus, Mary right. thing. You know, so Wait, yeah, one, one thing I'd like to mention is, uh, I, I, I wanted to from the beginning, but I... I passed over it, but yeah, I don't expect anyone to to believe uh, everything in my article. Uh, uh, believe is an interesting word, uh, uh, but uh, to just to look at it and to entertain. Uh, I mean, I like to think I, I'm a very curious guy, as you probably know, and I'm just I'm so curious about other people's uh, culture, food. Religion, lifestyle, philosophy—you know, terrain. Uh, how they, what houses kind, what, what kind of houses, and, and how do they cook, and clothes, and and you know, I, I'm just always fascinated by it. So, I just, I think everyone's like me, and but uh, in that way. But I, you know, not everyone is. You know, not everyone is curious enough. I like to entertain new knowledge, new ideas, and if it sinks in, it sinks in, you know. But I, I'll entertain it, and then maybe a year later, I'll find uh, another person or an article or a book where that information that I was looking at a year before, it starts uh, corroborating. You know, I make these connections, go, wow, that is interesting. Now I see somebody else talking about it. And they have a different perspective on it, but they're saying essentially the same thing. So that's what began to happen with the subject of parthenogenesis. I began to see it in books, in literature, in fiction, in movies. And uh, one thing about it is that women respond to the idea almost intuitively. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't see why that's so impossible to believe. Why is it so important? And... But it is very important because <laughs> well, and you, look for, uh, you know knowledge knowledge yeah, knowledge becomes uh, like political after a while. So uh, our beliefs, 
we tend to act on our beliefs. But believing is, to me, is is one of the ways that that we become to, we come to know things. So it's like I believe in a, in UFOs, okay? But until I really see one, and hopefully touch one, or I really see one that I absolutely know is a UFO, you know, I I can't say that I know. So believing is the first step toward knowing. And now, one thing they found out uh, uh, was a book that was written about American Indian languages. I think it was a woman about 25 years ago that uh, translated uh, or looked at translation or re-examined them and just put them all together in a book. And, uh, you know, there's like 375 different American Indian languages just in North America alone. And uh, they're all unique. There are, they do have things in common here and there, but for the most part, it's very unique. But one of the things you found is that none of them had a word that could uh, be equivalent to the word believe. And so among American Indian people or indigenous people in general, I would say this, that that probably exists among them as well, among indigenous people in different You either know something or you don't. And if you don't know it, then you have to go see the shaman, you know, go see the medicine person, go see grandma, you know, go see your father, go see your uncle. Well, he knows about that. Say, you know, you can walk around on day and say, I believe in hunting. And you go, okay, can you go get me something to eat? And he goes, well, I don't know how to do it. <laughs> I believe in it. Well, it's kind of, <laughs> so, you know, and you meet somebody else and they say, well, I don't believe in hunting, but it exists. Well, I don't believe that it exists. Well, how do you eat? So I don't know. He doesn't know that his uncle goes in fishing every day. You know, he just eats this fish. He doesn't believe in fishing, you know. But if you if you believe in what your uncle is saying, you know, your uncle is saying, well, you better believe in fishing because I'm a fisherman. The guy goes, and you're eating a fish. He goes, right. Okay. So uh, that kid, if he was smart, he would say, well, I do believe in fishing, but I still don't know it exists because I haven't seen him do it and I haven't fished. So you see the difference. And it's sort of like those two brothers, the one that believes in fishing and the one that doesn't believe in it, you know, they might start a fight, you know, and you go, you're fighting over a belief or a disbelief. And it's like, what a waste of time. You know, once you know something, you don't have to fight about it. (laughs) Absolutely. And so... I'm trying to spread my knowledge about this subject. So it's not a belief. I don't expect people to believe it, but I, you know, to, if I can inspire them to do their own research or to really read my article carefully, they'll see that I, I covered almost every stone you can imagine. There's so many things that a, the studying of parthenogenesis opens, even in astrophysics. Uh, the, the astrophysicists are saying and have been saying uh, for a long time that the universe itself is self-perpetuating. You know that. You know that's trying to understand big Big Bang theory, and they're trying to understand uh, how universes are born, and they're, they're trying to understand the nature of black holes. The, the Mayans considered black holes as the womb, and we have. 
that there's a black hole in the center of every single galaxy. And that's the womb of the galaxy. And they understand it as a womb. And it's like the, the black hole uh, uh, draws collapsed stars into itself and it goes into this other dimension and it gets transformed into uh, energy again and then in, it's like in reverse into another dimension and on the other side of the black hole it, it, it gives birth to stars in another dimension so it's creating the black hole is creating another universe on the other side of the black hole and there's the big bang starting all over again there's more than one big bang there's more than one universe and it's constantly being uh, decaying and being reborn again self-perpetuating universe and it happens on the cellular level uh, basically the majority of life forms on this planet are microscopic and the majority of the microscopic life on this planet is self-perpetuating. There are no males. It's just when the egg decides to split in half, it just does. It doesn't need a guy. It doesn't have to court a guy. You know, it doesn't have to get married and go through a ritual. You know, it doesn't take uh, the mother cell to a restaurant and, you know, give give it wine. You know, it's yeah, just get some little, self-perpetuating. Get some little flowers to the, you know. Oh, Hello, Mrs. Amoeba. Oh, what? <clears throat> This is funny. They did a study on these primordial bacterial cultures that the reason why they know they're primordial is because they're found in, in slate, you know, as uh, uh, what do you, fossils, you know, the microscopic fossils that's in slate, uh, uh, you know, that are billions, you know, millions upon millions of years old. And so... They identified uh, that there are still strains of these primordial bacteria cultures that they found in backwaters around the ocean where these tiles are basically abandoned at low tide. And uh, so these primordial bacterial cultures are in the ocean, and, and they, they identify them. They're, they're just like their cousins that are trapped in these fossils that are millions of years old. And so what they found... They found that they're self-perpetuating. There are no males. But what they did was they would remove, uh, you know, like a, like a glass full of, of the water, take it into a laboratory, take it under the microscope, and they would introduce uh, minute amounts of, of toxins into the seawater to see what would happen. And what happened was that these parthenogenetic cultures developed males in order to, uh, to, for the species to survive. So males are, are a secondary, uh, very important ingredient for the survival of the species. And uh, I, I'm just, you know, you can extend that to different creatures, you know, because it seems to be nature's choice to just give birth to females. And... Uh, uh, but you know, having males around is interesting and it's fun, you know. And, and uh, but you know, it's like having a dog compared to a cat. <laughs> you know, a dog is we love them, but but they're they're a lot of trouble. You know, you can't. It's like you can't go on vacation for three days. 
uh, I can do that with my cat. You know, my wife and I will go out, you know, to uh, uh, you know to the beach for three days, and, and we just have this automatic feeder, you know, and we have lots of bowls of water and a nice clean kitty box, and we come back. The kitty cat's perfectly happy. It still has food and water, and uh, but you can't do that with a dog. And I don't know. I don't want to take the dog and cat thing too far, but. Uh, men are a lot like dogs, and uh, women are a lot like cats. You know, they, cats are more you know, self-sufficient and kind of like scratching their head, wondering what all the fuss is about. But uh, but dogs are a lot of fun. They're beautiful, and uh, you know, just by studying parthenogenesis and looking at the idea that women have historically given birth this way, it's not going to stop. It, it's going to go on. It always has been. You know, it's not going to make men disappear. It's not going to, you know, it's we're not going to create these uh, horrible matriarchies where men are imprisoned. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, uh, and you know, sex is not going to disappear. But what we should do is just take a look. And and uh, I mean, our, our ancestors knew about it and, and revered and treated women. You know. I wouldn't say put them on a pedestal, but they honored them, and they, you know, you became a goddess when you gave birth to a child that way, you know, and uh, it doesn't mean that she was superior to anyone. It just it was just honoring her for because it's a difficult task. You have to train yourself for it. You know, you have to prepare yourself for it. But it does happen spontaneously. It's happening. Uh, haphazardly, you know, among vegetarian women, among lesbian women, uh, straight women that have a very pure diet or are on a very vegetarian type, it's starting to happen. And it, it just happens. And it, we may as well find out about it and we could set maybe set the stage for it or at least welcome it, not be afraid of it. Uh, it it's perfectly natural. And the thing is, if if women can get close to nature and super healthy, it's very possible that they'll give birth to these wonderful, uh, highly gifted geniuses, which we need at this point in time. I mean, I would love lots of Jesuses and Marys and Mother Teresas and, and Dalai Lamas and, uh, you know, walking around. Not that all of those people were born that way, you know, necessarily, but we need geniuses at this time to, to help us through this very difficult period of time. I got one quote that comes from this book that, uh, it's by Dr. Raymond Bernard and this was written like the 1950s after you know many years of study uh, Dr. Raymond Bernard and it's from a book, a wonderful book it's called Mysteries of Human Reproduction. This is a quote from him. Uh, here's the quote. That the immaculate conception has been made to appear miraculous and supernatural, a solitary event, incapable of repetition, and something which every rational and scientific mind must reject as absurd, has prevented the birth of many more individuals like Jesus and greater ones during the last several thousand years. I mean, that's one of the conclusions of his life on this subject. And, uh, and but the word immaculate, I don't like using because it, it makes 
you know, regular conception sound like it's dirty. So I, I don't like to use it, but people are, are, you know, respond to like virgin birth and immaculate conception because, you know, they're familiar with that terminology. But uh, miraculous they, conception, they, you know, divine it. birth. Yeah. So it, well, I think either way it goes, okay. it's pretty miraculous. Either it way, is. It, it is, isn't it? It is. I mean, the miracle that the, the fact that that there is life, you know, that our energy is vibrating through our cells for a certain amount of time here in this third dimension. And then when it's time for us to go back home to that beautiful light, uh, we're going to do that, you know, and then we'll understand a lot more. But it is a miracle that life is filtering through all the cells, you know, it, chlorophyll and, you know, insects and bugs and, uh, you know, animals, fish and, and plants. I mean, it, 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 it's all, uh, the life force is in all of those things. You know, it's even in stone, it's in rocks, it's in, uh, it's in wood, it's in everything. The life force, the, uh, the light that the scientists keep saying that we truly are made of light. All objects are made of light. The proton, you know, the uh, the energy that uh, is that com- that ties and strings together all the atoms. There's this sustained energy field that they know exists now. You know, they know it exists. They call it what do they call it? the God molecule? There's different names for it. Some man yeah, just the, got the uh, the Higgs boson. Nobel Prize. Yes, I know. So. But, you know, our ancient ancestors knew about this energy. They knew about it. But it was lost for a long time. But it is a miracle that, that, uh, that we're alive, you know, that we have these bodies. We're vibrating through these bodies. We are not our bodies, you know. They're just here for a while. But, you know, when my energy field leaves, I can, I'll be able to look down and say, boy, that thing is just a... A husk. It's just this hollow thing that was never me, you know. And you know, it was never me. So it's just I, my can, I know I'll be able to let, let go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I mean, I I don't want to be my body. I mean, I can love my body. You know, I I give it pretty much what it wants in moderation. You know, my mother lived to be nine. Chef sprouts. Uh, she never smoked cigarettes, but she would have a highball. You know, she'd have a whiskey on her on her 95th birthday. She had a, a whiskey, you know, with ginger ale. What they call it, a highball. Yeah. And uh, you know, she she'll have one, and then three months later, she would have a glass of wine. You know, and she would have steak. And uh, you know, she lived to be 95, but she, she ate. All amounts of food on a regular basis. Enjoyed her ice cream like two tablespoons in the evening. You know, she enjoyed small samples of her favorite things. And uh, I, yeah. I wish I could be more like her. I'm a little more extreme than her. I mean, I wish I could live like I was living at Hippocrates Health Institute, like that all the time. But it's it's very difficult to sustain on one one's own. 
it really does. It take is a without village. the without the group, you know, it is difficult yeah. to sustain that sort of thing. Yeah, it's very and, difficult. Uh, it is. Uh, but I, mean, I, I always longed for. Yeah, it was like I went to paradise, and then uh, I lost the map. You know. <laughs> yeah. But it's okay. I remember. Our our yeah. present author in residence doesn't <laughs> know anything okay. about that. She's that's her. Her second book is going back home to heaven, and her third book is crashing back to earth. So yeah, she wouldn't know anything about that, would you, Jean? Really? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Well, listen. I hope that uh, I hope that people have been intrigued by um, uh, what they've heard here tonight. I don't see how they couldn't be. Uh, so we want to be sure and tell them uh, here in a minute how to how to find you online and that sort of thing. But, you know, because like oh, yeah. you said, the study of parthenogenesis can also lead to so many of these other knowings. And 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 it could have prevented that whole Jurassic Park thing because they would have known <laughs> just having female dinosaurs wasn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to, to to mention the seeping into popular culture like you did. Um, so where can folks go on the Web to find out more about you and your work and. Yeah, the best thing, uh, uh, yeah, I, you know, I have no book to sell. I have not made a penny. Over 17,000 people have read my article. It's on about five different websites, but you just type in Parthenogenesis, that's P-A-R-T-H-E-N-O, Genesis, G-E-N-E-S-I-S. Parthenogenesis, uh, women's long-lost ability to self-conceive. And that will get you there. And uh, you read the article for free. You don't have to sign up to nothing. And uh, and it, it takes about 20 minutes, but it's quite a ride. And uh, you'll, you'll see a lot of subject material that we, we hardly touched on that all relates to it. And uh, hopefully uh, uh, your, your, your little corner of the universe will open up in ways that, uh, that you haven't even imagined yet. Uh, because it 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 uh, solves a lot of strange uh, questions that I think we still have about gender identity and uh, you know bi- biology and uh, religion history versus history matriarchy uh, patriarchy war violence conditional and non conditional love it just goes on and on and on. But it all, uh, you know, it makes sense. I mean, uh, I mean, if if you study astrophysics, you're going to find out about self-perpetuating universe, you know. And uh, you study biology, you're going to find out about self-perpetuating species. And uh, if you study art and music, you're going to find out the really successful artists like Bob Dylan and Picasso. What they did was constantly reinvent themselves. Like Bob Dylan's albums, you know, they might be a two or three or five year gap between them. But when he comes out with a new album, it's like a whole new Bob Dylan. So in a way, he like reinvented, he gave birth to himself. And uh, and, and Picasso did that a number of times with different styles of art over the many decades that he lived. He was, And he always remained a very successful artist. Uh, but... You know, it's an interesting subject because I think you're going to find that it's it's everywhere, <laughs> and it helped me also understand uh, homosexuality and lesbian people, 
I mean, the, the first three months of human life, it, it's a female. And then if it's going to be a male, the ovaries descend and become testicles, you know. And the clitoris elongates and uh, the breasts never quite develop. But I've, I've read over and over again different stories, testimonies, scientific reports of men uh, uh, nurturing their little infants, perhaps, when their wife is missing or dies, and uh, a man can actually produce milk through, through his breasts. And uh, it, uh, I, I think, basically, I mean, all, all this, the spiritualists say that life is feminine, the biologists say that the life is feminine, the planet is feminine, the universe is feminine, it's the great mother. And males play a very important part uh, uh, but women contain male and female energy. Uh, men contain male and female energy, but it's the queen. It's like the right brain. That's the whole purpose to live uh, because the right brain is emotion, is compassion, intuition. Uh, it's the way to achieve unity with higher consciousness. You know, you have to get that monkey mind out of the way. That, you know, that's constantly talked about in meditation. We have to get into our right brain. The left brain is a good tool to get us there. We have to learn exercises. The left brain remembers the exercises and remembers the postures in yoga and remembers to, uh, you know, to turn the light on and off and uh, close the door. <laughs> the left brain is good for that. It's the servant. It's the servant. Absolutely. In a way, the male is the servant to the female, in a way, in a way. But the female serves male and the whole universe, you know. I mean, that, that right brain, the queen, the great mother. But, but mother came first, you know. God came after, you know. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, no. it was a male-female energy Ooh. that created, yeah, you know. So that's right in harmony with all the major... Uh, the, the roots of all the major religions, if you go deep enough, analyzing uh, the origin of the words uh, uh, that, you know, like Allah and Yahweh, and, you know, you're going to find that they had female uh, roots, uh, that there was a mother that came, you know, the egg came before the chicken, you know, that's just the way it, it works. There was a bubble, and in that bubble, you know, the single cell life, you know, it, it just, it divided and it started to generate life, you know. And uh, but it started with the circle, the egg, you know. So the egg came before the chicken, folks. That's the uh, answer to that great mystery. I don't know why the chicken crossed the street yet, but I'm still working on it. <laughs> yeah, it was probably a it was probably a boy chicken anyway, which have ridiculous reason. But um, <laughs> but I hope I, people read the, read the article and and I have an email there. They can just write to me and. Uh, I always try, I always answer all my emails. You know, luckily I didn't get seventeen thousand emails because I couldn't deal with it. But the ones that want to write to me, they they can, and uh, they have an interesting birth story. I wouldn't believe some of the interesting birth stories I'm getting. Uh, it's it's alive and well. Uh, you know, it is the time of the Mayans and the Hopis have been talking about the return of the sacred feminine. They've been talking about it for decades. And I think it began yes, uh, in 2012. 2012, she started coming back. And she's going to balance everything out again. And uh, 
it's going to be liberated for us men. There will be birth. There is a rebirth of sacred masculine taking place right alongside. The more liberated a woman becomes, the more power that she gains, regains as a woman, not trying to be like a man, in her true powerful woman self, the more power and liberation and freedoms and rights that she obtains all over the world, the more men are going to receive the exact same thing. The freer we will be from violence, environmental disaster, war, disease, all that is going to slowly go away the more women take over everything. <laughs> you know, we're right on. 50. Right on. Well, listen, Dan, get in I there. Really get want in to the thank you again <laughs> for uh, sharing your time, talent, and treasure with us this evening. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, and folks, we yeah. will have uh, we will have a link to uh, at least one of the spots where you can find the article in our archive on our website at everydayconnection.me. Uh, we also encourage you while you're there sign up for our newsletter. We've got some really really exciting things coming. Uh, 2014's just going to be well. I can tell you now, but you wouldn't believe it. So you'll just see it when it comes because it's coming. And um, and of course we always have more brilliant folks coming, more brilliant conversations like this, and over 250 other brilliant conversations available on our website. So check those out while you're there. And, um, Thanks a lot, Rick and Jean. Thank you again. Our pleasure. And so we do hope you will join us again next time. But until then... To our mother, to each other, and especially to yourselves, stay connected. Have a great now, everybody. Join Jane and Rick again next time. Until then, visit their website at everydayconnection.me and subscribe for news and updates. Stop by their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everyday connection and join the conversation. You can also subscribe on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free, just like your everyday connection. question of your life the only question before that question how do you find the perfect ring to ask it with with the incredible selection of diamonds at jared and our price match guarantee you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love visit your local jared store today and dare to be devoted we promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer see jared.com slash price match for details so you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, 
you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details.